welcome back to We've Got Next Pod. As part of our series on trying to understand the causes and implications of, of crime, particularly violent crime, I want to talk to Kai Sean Smith, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Criminal Justice in the College of Humanities and Behavioral Sciences at Radford University, because he talks a lot about and thinks a lot about how social networks and community is related to crime. Basically, the idea is that people who have fewer positive interactions, specifically within organized community organizations, will are more likely to be part of violence. And this re- also relates to concerns about the geography of crime. Specific areas may have more frayed social networks, and therefore those areas would have more crime. He centers a lot of his research in Scotland and the UK, but he's actually from Brooklyn. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Smith. Enjoy. Um, all right. So first of all, thank you. Um, I know it's kind of bold coming on the kids' podcast, but I appreciate it. That's not a problem. <laughs> um, so my first question is kind of broad, just to get the listener a sense of what some of your work is, especially recently. Um, how are social networks related to crime? Um, well, so... Uh, there's a couple of different ways to approach this, and I'm going to try the, the most direct way. Um, a lot of what we know about social networks as it pertains to crime, it goes back to uh, pretty much the beginning of the 20th century. So if you're kind of looking at a, a, a timeline here, uh, right around the 1920s slash 30s, the University of Chicago started to come on the scene as being a major think tank when it came to Western sociological thought. Um, a lot of sociological thinking before they got involved was really Eastern philosophy. So you, you Emile Durkheim, Max Weber, those, those, those people. Um, Western sociology, and specifically at the University of Chicago, really started to put out this idea of social networks, and, and more specifically socialization, as being a key function of how we how we operate, how we live, um, really in their own backyard. So Chicago, being a major city, was one of the uh, was one of the the, the sort of um, benchmark locations where industrialization was taking place. And so, as we were transitioning as a society in in, in America, as we were transitioning from a more agricultural society to much more urbanized. We actually were also changing the shape of how we how we aggregate as communities. Okay, so really the idea of a city yeah. didn't even exist until industrialization. Um, so when it comes to social networks, the the idea that social networks would be relevant to anything in this country really you could say it started right around the time of the Chicago School becoming popular. All right. Now, with that said. Uh, a lot of what the, social, the Chicago School of Sociology started to get into was juvenile delinquency, because that's that's actually what the biggest thing was. The biggest the biggest outcome of industrialization was okay. Now we have young people where traditionally they would be working on farms. Yeah. Well, now, granted, you could a lot of kids did get some kind of factory work, but it wasn't common because it's dangerous. Yeah. And you know, quite frankly. Um, a lot of the machines required, uh, you know, a, a great deal of strength to operate. So, so what ended up happening as industrialization started to kick in, and, and we started to become uh, a much more urbanized society, 
um, this focus on heavy manufacturing, heavy machinery, it positioned children as being less viable in the labor force. Not absent, but just less viable. So quite frankly, Chicago, like a lot of major cities, started to realize, like, hey, we have a lot of young people who now aren't engaged. They're not doing anything. And so what are they doing? Well, they're, in some cases, they're getting in trouble. Um, so juvenile delinquency ended up being the first sort of area of crime where this idea of socialization and social networks really became popular. And ultimately, um, some, of the, some of the most defining theories out of that era, uh, such as social disorganization, that's really the big one, uh, and informal social control, it really put out this idea that if you don't keep young people engaged with other uh, positive influences, adults and their peers, if you don't keep them engaged, they're going to find other ways to socialize. They're gonna find other ways to connect. And sometimes they will find unhealthy ways to connect to other people, all right? So that's really, you know, at least as far as the short answer to that question, uh, this idea of how social networks became connected to anything like crime, it's pretty much that. It's pretty, I think it really started from there. It's, now, before then, and that, that's a whole another history lesson of Eastern sociology. So, so I was going to bring this up later, but it feels so mm-hmm. it feels so present in your answer about kids needing something to do, and if they don't have it, they'll do that in negative yeah. ways, which will be crime. How does that help you understand the 2020 um, crime wave? Because homicides in particular, I think we're up between like 25% and 40% nationally. And there were yeah. many different understandings of this. People talked about like protests against police and how that could have affected it. Some people talked about poverty, but it seems like you would have a particular understanding of that based on your work. I, I, I can. I don't know. If, I don't know how much. I, I, I'm one of those criminologists that I always pause whenever, I, I, whenever, whenever someone, you know, asks me how much of an understanding I have. Uh, I think any criminologist who really follows the data will tell you that we are, we're taking educated guesses at something that has been around for longer than any of us have been alive. Um, I will say this, you always have to start off with the idea that there's no one cause of crime. They just, it just doesn't happen that way. Um, more than anything, the last 50 years of criminological science has shown us that uh, you could find any number, any four or five major factors to any crime and, and that's going to um, you know, that's probably going to be valid. When it comes to young people, starting in that, in, that, in, in that part of the answer I think that a lot of what we've been learning over the last decade is for as, as connected a society as we're becoming and as much as we relying upon technology to facilitate interaction, there still isn't a replacement for the benefits of one-to-one interaction between young people as well as adults. Okay, in fact, this is—it's um, I, I, I have a, a thirteen-year-old, and I kind of learned from her, and I'm reminded from her, from her, from her, her desire to want to have. Uh, uh, you know, sleepovers, or you know, can I you know meet up with a friend here and there? I mean, I even I even was joking with a friend of mine. Uh, somebody should start a ride sharing app for the the seventeen and under crowd because you know it, it's just literally all these different opportunities to just you know connect with one another. I mean, that's what shop that's what's kept shopping malls open. 
for the for, for the last twenty years. It's not adults. That's yeah. that's teens who just want a place a, a place to connect. And I used to laugh whenever I would see a group of teenagers just getting together in a mall, and all they're doing is texting each other. I used to, I used to, I'm thinking well, what, that that makes no sense to me. But again, you know, learning from my own daughter, I'm realizing. See, there's still something deeply intrinsic. It's literally hardwired into our DNA to connect with people physically. You know, that's that. It's literally a biological function. It goes all the way back to. I mean. Uh, the, the research, you can, you know, Google, your listeners can Google this later, but the research of Sheldon and Eleanor Gluck uh, is probably, you know, one of the linchpin studies that shows that we actually, our, our biological health is connected to socialization. We literally do not function properly physically, let alone cognitively, if we're isolated, okay? Skipping ahead now to the recent crime wave in 2020 and, and really that crime I would say crime the, 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 what we're seeing now that, that, that actually was coming coming up even before then like a couple years before then but a lot of I think what's happening is you're starting to see the fallout of what happens when you have a society that especially young people that are kept away from each other for you know even a month let alone 12, 14, 15 months okay I mean that's you know, it, it, it's it's easy to just kind of throw darts and you know at, at the pandemic and okay, this is the reason why things are the way they are in the world now. But in the case of how crime and violence is associated with social networks, to the extent that you can connect social networks and social networking to cognitive health, you absolutely can draw that line. And I think it's it's accurate. I think a lot of young people uh, were venting frustration, and they were they were either. Uh, they were either harming themselves or harming others, um, and and not and not you know not just with young people with adults as well, but it's, particularly when we talk when we talk about the the seventeen and under crowd, so much of what you guys are doing right now, so much of so much of who you're going to become, it's based it's still based upon who you connect with, who you network with, the quality of those connections, and it doesn't matter you know if it happens online, it happens online, but I'm still finding that. In 2021, so many times when, 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 when a, a, a piece of valuable information is imparted, or, or when something is is, is, is is you know treated as being a positive force in a young person's life, it's still happening in some way, shape, or form face to face. So I think that's where the connection is, um, and and I think we're still, you know, I think we're still just now seeing what the effects were of this prolonged period where young people were, 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 were had the opportunity to freely interact with one another taken away from them. That, that's a huge, huge thing. I'm even seeing in my classroom with my students um, where they talk about, yeah, you know, admittedly, they're having some, some mental health issues. And they didn't know that they had these issues until they had to spend 12 months looking at four walls. So... Um, yeah, so you sort of brought up something that in terms of like quality of connections and it felt like you framed that in terms of like how good a, like a specific friendship is or something, but I wanted to ask you in terms of the connection to interpersonal violence, is there a difference between different types of connections? And I, I bring this up because in your, um, in the abstract you sent me about mm-hmm. Scotland that you're going to start working on, I think, um, yeah. you mentioned civic engagement, um, yeah. religion and civil action and those seem like... Yeah. 
for lack of a better word, like very serious and like productive things, ways that people could be using like their time. Is that the same or different than going to the mall with your friends? Oh, I I mean, I think there's, yeah, there's levels to it, but I I think you can get a lot of the same benefits out of different types of connections. So um, I'm trying to think like, so uh, the the model uh, that I'm thinking of specifically, I believe it's a, uh, Robert Putnam is the is the person that I always think about when I think about uh, the concept of social capital. But his his discussion of social capital really does delve into different layers of networks. Okay, so you've got from if I'm if I get, if, if I'm remembering his model correctly, you've got private connections, you've got uh, uh, parochial connections, and then you've got public connections. Okay, the private connections end up being the the, the different bonds that we have with family members, close friends, that sort of thing. Um, and those types of connections, uh, they, they, they usually, they, 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 they tend to be a bit more dense in the sense that they, they, they've been cultivated over a longer period of time. Um, you probably have specific memories with people that, you know, are just, just make them an indelible part of your life, that kind of thing, right? You know, Julian's mom or dad or sister or brother, you know, that's, you know, that's a bond that carries with it certain benefits that it's almost unspoken. I don't have to ask, you know, I, I don't have to sit and really think about what's the connection I have with this person. It's been there probably since birth, right? Yeah. So those are your private connections. Um, now the parochial connections, um, specifically, I mean, it, it, it's it's at an organizational level, but it's at an organizational level that still has some sort of personal connection to you. So, for example, when it, when, when, when parochial connections are brought up uh, in the concept of social capital, it's often, often uh, religious institutions are what's, are what's thought of. And so for as much as a religious institution isn't necessarily a family member or you don't necessarily have family there, their connection with you ends up being almost like the surrogate. For what you know, for close family or friends, okay, and a lot this in this specifically in this country, a lot of the history of social development and cultivating social networks between young people, it happens where in a church or some sort of youth organization that is religiously founded, YMCA, uh, you know, United Way, Boys and Girls Clubs of America. I mean, all these organizations have some sort of connection, either directly or indirectly, with religious institutions, right? And then finally, get the public connections. Now, the public connections, public the, the kind of public networks, public connections that one might form, you can still gain some benefits from those. You can still gain security, safety, trust, civic engagement from those connections, but they may not be quite as dense. All right. So, a, a public a public level connection might be uh, the kind of people that meet up at a, a local concert, right? Or, um, uh, you know, even, you know, the kind of the kind of camaraderie that is demonstrated at a football game, all right? These are public space. You don't necessarily know the person, you know, well next to you uh, or, or at all. But there's something, some identity, some bond that you've made, even if it's just fandom for the team itself, that... Even in that loose connection, there can still be some benefits, um, some drawn. And, and the, 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 the best example of that, I actually go back to when, uh, when 9-11 happened. I was actually still living in New York at the time. Um, 
I don't think I can recall another time in my life where I saw as many strangers doing whatever they could to help someone out that they probably didn't know. You know, and, and again, that 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 type of civic engagement, that type of willingness to intervene on behalf of the common good, that kind of thing was embedded in New York already. But it took that tragedy in order for it to be activated. Like that, there was there needed to be a catalyst. Okay, so that sort of public layer of social capital already was there, but it wasn't necessarily being act. It wasn't necessarily as active as it was until. You know that tragedy happened. So, so that's the way I think of it. Um, that makes some sense. Yeah, it definitely does. And I want you to just so that my listener can get an understanding of like the significance of all that. Could you try to draw the line really clearly between those social bonds you're talking about, and then how that gets translated into acts or the lack of those bonds, perhaps, gets translated into acts of violence? Like, I want my listener to know why that why that matters. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Actually, okay, so. The one theory you can follow, um, uh, strain theory. Okay, now strain theory. Actually, there's two theories: strain theory and social bond, uh, uh, informal social control. But I'll, I'll, strain theory, strain theory. That 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 goes even as as far back as uh, literally Eastern sociology. Okay, Emil Durkheim was one of the first sociologists to really put a lock on a clear idea of. Why do people commit suicide? Okay, and his argument, you know, very briefly was that whenever a person has a set of goals that they want to accomplish, but the society that they're in isn't allowing him or her to meet those goals, that disconnect is the strain that will cause them to potentially harm themselves. Right now. Again, I go back to that research I was telling you about, Sheldon and Eleanor Gluck. One of, one of the things that they were able to discover, I think back in the 50s, was that just by looking at how infant rhesus monkeys behave when they are exposed to an actual nurturing environment versus an environment where they're only getting food and sleep but no, but no nurturing, infant rhesus monkeys have demonstrated that they are cognitively and behaviorally healthier than the, the, the cohort that only gets food and, and, and shelter. Well, we're the same way, okay? Infants, from the time that we're born, one of the things that uh, you, you learn from um, uh, adoption agencies, actually, is trying to pair parents, foster parents, with, 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 uh, with, with, uh, with adoptees um, at a young enough age, that's really key because what they're trying to do is they're trying to make sure that an, a, a, at, at a young enough age, the, the, the benefits of informal social bonding, uh, the, 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 those things can really can really take shape. Even in a foster environment where you have older kids, a lot of what um, the, the uh, adoption agencies will try to do is they'll try to keep those kids engaged in some sort of a familial environment where you know even the the, the adoption agency itself, especially in you know uh, you know latter, the latter fifty years, adoption agencies have really tried to take the label of adoption agency off like this is our home this is our house this is our you know fill blank house or blank home or whatever and the reason why is because the idea of home the idea of family the idea of bonding it's connected to cognitive health it's connected to um the, a, a a positive sense of self-worth which and all of these things by the way are connected to uh one's tendency for violence 
Okay, I mean, this is you know, at, at its at its core, there is no there are no shortage of psychological studies uh, that predate criminology that demonstrate violence is connected to self image. It's connected to a sense of self worth. When you have a better sense of self worth, when you have a positive self image of yourself, you're less likely to be prone to violence. Okay, um, the, the 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 types of ways that one can cultivate a positive self-image, the kind of ways that one can, can cultivate um, a sense of purpose in life. A lot of that comes from the quality of your social networks. Okay, And in fact, uh, you know, it, it goes right back down to um, what is the value of family? What is the value of school? Okay, Part of the reason why we have had a model of education in our country for so long that, that tries to merge the, 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 the family environment with the school environment is because when those two things are in sync, you get a consistent message of self-worth, self-value, positive reinforcement. That's, that's what's happening there. Um, and, and so that's the connection in terms of when you have someone who's behaving violently, whether it's criminal or otherwise. I mean, because that's, that's, you know, there are a lot of violent behaviors that yeah. aren't criminal. Um, but when you have someone behaving violently, more often than not, when you travel through their history of what caused them to become violent, either entirely or at least with some significant contribution, some significant partial contribution, you can connect it to the quality or lack of quality in the social bonds that existed in their life, and often at a young age. I mean, that, this is this is classic whenever you study someone uh, who is a, uh, who who is prone to to domestic violence. Okay, where does that come from? It was learned behavior, yeah. and it was learned behavior also in the also in the context of a a significant lack of nurturing, you know. So, so how? Um, so that's 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 usually. But in for, uh, I would I, I would really say strength theory is one way to is, is, is one path to follow, and then uh, social bond theory, honestly, is yeah. another one um, that just usually connects. So. How do how does that relate to? Um, I wanted to ask about the geography of crime. Because a report yeah. came out recently about, yeah. it's, I'm finding numbers right now, 1% of streets in New York City, where I live, produce a quarter yeah. of the crime, and 5% of the streets create half the crime. And I just yeah. wanted to bring this up because multiple things can happen when we, when we don't understand why. First of all, it's important <laughs> to know that like not everybody feels crime and violent crime equally. And then sometimes when people see these stats, they think it's about like the people in those right. who live there, and it becomes racialized. So how does... How does understanding the the environment, like the social bonds that are created, how does that re- relate to where crime happens? Is it about like the conditions of inherited poverty and how that takes away those social bonds and those opportunities? Uh, yeah, but <laughs> so it, it is, there's, there's there's a couple again, lot, there are a lot of layers to this. Let's talk about New York real quick. Okay. Right? So so now, growing up in New York, um, one of the things that I became quickly aware of is that, and I'm sure you're aware of it too, there's certain neighborhoods you're not supposed to go to, there's certain streets you're not supposed to walk down, blah, 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 right? And you learn a lot of that informally, you know, just by talking with friends, right? Talk with family members, right? You, you, you learn the rules of your neighborhood oftentimes from just the people in your household or the people in your neighborhood. Well, the thing with New York that is, that, that, that's, that's often difficult to capture in a research study uh, and, and really, in any other way, unless you actually visit New York, is the the, the, the sheer density of, of 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 what's laid out in front of you 
is, is rather unique. I mean, there's very, there are very few cities that are like this. Maybe London, honestly, might be, you know, or Paris, but even, I would say, uh, you know, New York has, has some unique, has some uniqueness in that respect. But as far as what makes one area more dangerous than the other, a lot of times what I think we're finding is that there's this concept of relative deprivation that is that that that, that is at play now the, now. the simple idea behind relative deprivation is this: poverty is something that's defined not just by how how much how many how much resource you have in your hands uh, to do what you want to do, but also how you how you assess your access to resources compared to your neighbor. All right. So if I live with another poor, you know, poor family and, you know, everybody in my, in my neighborhood, everybody on my block is pretty, you know, not, not, not doing all that well. Okay. I might be poor, but frankly, I don't really necessarily think I'm poor until I start to see somebody who definitely is not poor. All right. This is what happened. This, this is part of what, um, uh, going back to, going back to study, uh, some of the research from people, uh, some of the, the, the work of people like Jane Jacobs back in back in the day. Um, one of the things that she was able to highlight is that, you know, a bad neighborhood isn't necessarily just bad because, you know, the people there are poor. That's not, it's not just about poverty. It's also about the fact that there's someplace else very close by where people are clearly doing much better, could be helping out the people who are doing as well, and simply choosing not to. I mean, you go to you go to the Upper East Side in New York, all right. It is an absolute, like, complete flip flop of what you see in East Harlem, New York. Okay, now there's some parts there's some parts of East Harlem that are quite nice, but yeah. it's there's clearly areas of East Harlem that 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 are economically more depressed. All right, and that's been that that is classic New York. I mean, they, I, I grew up I, I, specifically with Brooklyn. I grew up in Brooklyn before the Barclays Center, before. Um, I mean, good lord! I mean, they, they, I, I'm trying to think. There, there, there wasn't even. There used to be a, a massive shopping mall that they obliterated to, to to put up the Barclays Center. But I mean, I remember when Junior's Cheesecake was the only, like you know, uh, place of any any real kind of like significance um, in that area. The transformation of areas like. Like like downtown Brooklyn, that, that particular part of it, with a place like New York City, as one neighborhood is is is, is in gets economic investment, gets social investment, gets financial investment. Relative deprivation will dictate how much of the next neighborhood also gets those benefits. Now, hmm. when you have relative deprivation deeply entrenched, you can you can revitalize. Uh, five square blocks of a city and that's all that n- nothing else changes yeah. nothing else gets improved right um, but when you're able to reduce the effect of relative deprivation when you're able to erode some of those layers um, then yeah what you end up with is is, is sort of um, uh, I'm, I'm, the term is escaping me at the moment but um, what you end up with is a a, a trickle down effect of, of benefits so in other words uh, you know uh Harlem, Harlem, New York, from 120th Street down to 103rd, 103rd Street, that gets revitalized. Okay, so now people living in 120 on 120, 120th Street, they look across 121st Street and say, "Hey, you know what? 
it might not be a bad idea to also fix the potholes on 121st Street. So yeah. let's let's write let's write to the city planners and you know say hey can we fix 121st Street? And then eventually those same people start looking at 123rd Street, 125th, and so and so again there's that trickle down effect. But crime and violence as a as as a concept as a geographic concept, um, and, and and as far as what what sort of centers crime and violence in certain areas. I mean, it's poverty, yes, but it's also this, you know, to, to the extent that relative deprivation is or is not entrenched in a community. Um, and then also, a lot of it is also to the, what is the extent that concepts like poverty are leveraged against the very thing I was just talking about, social capital. I mean, you, you can have a very poor community where people aren't necessarily violent because they have a lot of social capital that allows them to get by or get ahead in life. All right? that, that's actually what, what one, of, one, of, one of Jane Jacobs' main arguments when she was living in New York and when she was fighting against Robert Moses and all, yeah. his, all, his, all, his, city, all his, his development plans in New York. What she was arguing was that you're trying to build um, infrastructure that circumvents all these poor neighborhoods but you don't realize there's value in these poor neighborhoods. The, re- the reason why they're poor is not because they want to be poor. It's because the resources that you're investing in the West Side Highway or that you're investing in the, all these parks um, that are, are situated outside of the poor neighborhoods, those resources could be used to revitalize the poor neighborhoods and they would be just fine. In the meantime, residents are still getting by. They're still getting ahead. And they're not – the majority of people who live in poor communities aren't you know they're not they're not slashing each other's throats in the streets. I mean, violence is still violent crime is still one of those things where it is still, you know, statistically among the the, the the significant minority of crimes that occur. Most crimes that occur are crimes of convenience or property crimes. You know, it's a, it's a crime of hey, I needed you know, uh, it, it's a mugging or it's a it's a you know it's a, an auto theft or it's you know that kind of thing. So yeah, crime tends to concentrate geographically based upon a variety of facts, but certainly I think that. In a city like New York, along with the concentration of poverty, concentrated disadvantage, um, relative deprivation is a huge aspect of it. How 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 is poverty perceived against one neighborhood versus another? Okay, and how much is it stigmatized? Also, because that's the other thing too. Yeah. If you stigmatize poverty and, and and force poverty to be a negative, then you start to create a culture where people feel like they should be like they're not as valuable because they're poor. So. Is that kind of mindset about what happens when you stigmatize poverty and also when people are observing the relative deprivation, are those kind of mindsets similar to like the lack of social bonds in that they contribute to like the type to like people becoming more violent? Um, what do you mean? I mean, just to draw the line between those concepts and like real crimes being committed for the listener. Is that is it like a similar effect into how you talked about social bonds and like the way people grow up? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, because I think so. When, when we talk about the again quality of social bonds, a lot of times, who you connect with in 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 a, in a community, they will they will the types of people you connect with in a community. They have a lot to do with how you create your own 
self self perspective. Like so, in other words, you know, again, Julian, you know, you you and I live in the same neighborhood, right? And your family makes about as much money as my family. All right. To the extent that we can have, we have a similar understanding of of each other because we're also, you know, we live in the same neighborhood and we have the same ba- same basic resources. Um, you know, we connect on that level. But if Julian and his family, you know, let's say his dad or his mom gets a job and they they're able to move out the community. All right, you've moved now. You might not have moved very far. You maybe you moved, uh, you know, a few uh, twenty blocks up. Yeah. Okay. To you know, to another part of the city. Okay. But if in moving, you're now exposed to a better school system, and now you're exposed to um, better options for uh, clothing stores or grocery stores or what have you. Well, now your life perspective is, is, is adjusting. And by the way, uh, because you've now moved to a different neighborhood, even though we may still be friends, you're now associating with people who also have access to those same better resources. Not it's not always it's not always um, tangible resources, but still. Um, the, the the benefits of being exposed to people who are now living in a community that has more has that has you know more resources better resources that in and of itself could impact your life perspective for the for the better and in turn my life perspective might adjust because now my friend Julian you know we might still be friends but now you live in a different part of the neighborhood we may not talk as much and also we might start to kind of see life a little bit differently because you're now being exposed to a different set of resources I mean this is actually something that um, I can say happened to me when I went off to college. I, I left the city to go to college. And I purposely wanted to, and what I started to realize was, I mean, I went to West Virginia University for my undergrad, and poverty in West Virginia is a very different animal. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, poor is poor, but yeah. but what it looks like is very different. And I, and frankly, I started to develop a pretty, or a rather prickly view of the city. And poverty, and because I just felt like there's so many resources that are literally right at the right at the front door of most of the poor communities where we start where we see you know more not where we see more recorded violence. Because that's the other thing I, I want to we got to emphasize to the listeners here is that a lot of what we're talking about is the violence that gets publicized. All right, but ultimately, um, I really feel like a lot of times. The quality of social connections, to the extent that those social connections uh, create your worldview and your as well as your own self perspective, if if those connections are able to foster a healthy self perspective of yourself, as well as as well as a healthy worldview of what your life chances are, the things that you can accomplish in life, then you're probably going to find less violent communities. But on the flip side. If those social connections are constantly feeding you negative ideas, like you know, and the only way you're going to get get ahead in life is you know you got to sell that rock, or you know you you know hey you know snatch that chain or whatever. Well, then guess what? You know you're, you're going to learn that that's that's my life perspective. That's my that's that's the that's the worldview of relevance. You know, I mean that's probably quick sidebar. I was trying to explain to my daughter what gangster rap was, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's funny because I, I it's hard it's it, it's hard. For me to call something gangster rap now, when the people in the videos that are profess to be gangster rappers, they're all wearing jewelry that I couldn't even imagine. Like that's that's more than a mortgage on my house. Yeah, and the set is like a mansion in L.A. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But 
when 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 groups like NWA and and, and, and artists like MCA and, and and what have you when they were when they were coming up, one of the reasons why gangster rap really hit at such a big time back in the late eighties and early nineties was because they were presenting a worldview that really up up until that point people on the East Coast we hadn't seen this before we hadn't seen like wow they're you know people are really like people are really angry. Yeah. And they're really angry because of, you know, of poverty and deprivation and resource, resource uh, 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 you know, differentiation and resources that, 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 is, that is really um, tragic and, 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 and hasn't been addressed for so long. So it's just, it's just interesting how, you know, me trying to explain it, it brings me back full circle to this conversation about how self-perspective and, and, and world worldview, how those things are, are, are really influenced by who you connect with in a community and ultimately um, how those things influence whether or not you are more prone to behave violently or not. So. Yeah, real quick, just responding yeah. to your sidebar about rap, it's fascinating to yeah. look at like how the roots of yeah. rap are like the Bronx is burning and if you listen to the early rap songs, they're very much about that and yeah. then if you look at rap now, it's people talking about how much money they have. It's like a very different thing. It's like almost completely the opposite. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm no rap historian. I'm just, you know, just aficionado. But I would say it's funny if you look at from the mid to late '70s when you know, kind of like the very beginning of rap music and what they were rapping about then, which was just you know, just a, you know, party for the most part and just have some fun. Yeah. Pretty much from there to into the '80s and '90s. Right around the eighties and nineties, you had this this, this 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 cosmic shift where you had three basic zones: party rap, political rap, and um, gangster rap. You know, and it's like you know, like being politically minded, being focused on violence and and and, and really you know glorifying crime, and then still having fun. Like you know, three yeah. specific zones. And then from that point, now where we're at, I mean. Yeah, everything sounds like they're just, they, they, you know, I'm rich now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm quite wealthy. And, you know, I'm not, you know, if I'm, if I'm not wealthy, I'm going to rap about being wealthy because hopefully, I, you know, I can speak it into existence. Exactly. You know? So, so it's, it's, it, it is, yeah, rap music has a way of kind of, uh, well, music in general has a way of, of sort of coloring in between the lines with, with, with some of these things we're talking about. But, um, but yeah, you know, it's just, it's just, Again, self perception, self perception, and worldview. I mean, uh, you know how you see yourself, and then how you see the world. Yeah, I mean, when you're surrounded by people who are really fostering positives in those two areas, uh, I, yeah, I think you tend to find less, less. One is less prone to violence. Okay, yeah. um, not entirely, uh, you know, but less less prone. Um, this is the this is one of the an idea I wanted to bring up, just sort of to like not wrap up our conversation, but yeah, because fine. it's sort of it comes after like the under like your understanding of what crime is. What does mm-hmm. this like social and to some extent economic view of crime imply about like what the policy response to high crime should be? Is it about like investing in like community centers and things like that, or what's the how do you use this understanding to think about how to lower crime rates? Uh, I mean, I, I would say one of the courses I teach is public policy and criminal justice. Um, I am a I'm a big believer that very little gets done in our society anymore without a policy connected to it and a policy that people are willing to act upon. Okay, 
Now, sometimes that policy isn't actually a written policy. Sometimes it's just an informal understanding amongst residents in the community. And if, if enough people are following a certain pattern, it's, it's a policy. Yeah. Whether you wrote it down or not, it's a policy. So I think as far as how this information gets used, it, it's all about what kind of policies you're able to draft and, and, and implement based upon the information. And then, yeah, who do you have that's, that, that's, that's acting behind those things? I mean, you listen, we, in New York, again, as an example, um, when, when Eric Garner was killed, it, it, police brutality wasn't an unknown thing, okay? Now, again, statistically speaking, the vast majority of police officers do their job. Yeah. You know, it's just you know, it's just not you know, it's not like you know, they're 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 out there you know, just strangling people you know, um, all day long. But when Garner's death was caught on on body cam footage as well as cell phone footage, but then also when you saw when you could hear people screaming like please stop he's dying what it you know the, the, the lightning rod that that event served as that you know what it did it started to force more specific policies through the city level and the state level to start to really cut, try to address police violence i mean it's, it, it's not again it's not, police brutality listen I, when i was when i was you know 17 i, I was you know yeah Young, certain you know, certain neighborhood, you would every so often hear about a, a young black or brown person, or you know just you know a young person period who were who were brutalized um, at the hands of police officers. It's not that there haven't been instances where police officers haven't stepped out of bounds, but again, the imagery and and the, the viral nature of that imagery, how it you know spread like wildfire through social media as, as well as through through more conventional media outlets. That caused a seismic shift in the amount of actual formal policies that were written and drafted and pushed through the New York State and city legislature in order to actually address police brutality. So policy, policy development is, is a major, again, I just, I, I cannot think in any more of any specific instances where a major social movement in any context doesn't happen without at least one solid policy behind it, if not several. And again, it doesn't have to be a written policy. It's just a policy that you know people informally agree upon. This is how we're going to run our community. Um, so that's how I think this information typically gets used, or at least should be used. Um, beyond that, uh, hey, you know, I'll, I'll 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 give you some kudos here. I think you're going to have to start as young people. You, you know, I'm talking to the the, the 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 17 and under crowd. Quite frankly, the 30 and under crowd, even for that matter. Uh, young voices are going to have to really start stepping up and saying, look, there's an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, you know, it's all well and good to have your fun as a teenager, but understand that pretty soon you won't be a teenager. You're going to have to be making some pretty, you know, grown up decisions here. And, and by the way, you're also smart enough to have an opinion about these things. Like it's not, you know, there's the, being 36 versus being 16. Yeah. There's a 20 year difference in life experience, but you can have an opinion at 16. And a lot of times, especially in the world that, you know, I spend a lot of my time in cybercrime, you know, of all things, a lot of what you learn about technology, you learn it when you're 10. Yeah. You know, I, you know, this, I'm, you know, this, this, the, the technology is for the young, 
you know? So, um, so I think a lot of, aside from, aside from policy development, uh, I think a lot of what happens in terms of how this information can be used and should be used, it, it comes down to, um, putting it in the hands of young people to actually act upon it. You know, you make a podcast about it. Yeah. You know, or maybe, you know, write a blog about it, you know, you know, uh, take photos or, you, you, know, to, you know, create a photo collage of things in the city that you think are, 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 are right or things that, that aren't, you know, okay. I mean, this is graffiti, you know, mm-hmm. again, I explained to my daughter, what is graffiti? That's what graffiti was. Graffiti was for as much as, as it was a way for young people to express themselves artistically. It was also social commentary. It's exactly what it was. And so certain neighborhoods, Graffiti was being used as a way of tagging, you know, ownership. But also, it was, hey, this neighborhood is terrible, or this neighborhood, you know, has a particular thing that I want to talk about. I I don't know how to write that it, 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 as a news article, so it's going to become a burner, you know, on the on the, on the six train, you know. So, yeah. Um, All right. I mean, we're up to the forty-five minutes. Um, <laughs> no, I I really appreciate you um, coming on the podcast and sharing all this no information. No problem. And and honestly, you know, now that I have had to answer these questions, I mean, part of the reason why I I do like to do stuff like this, I haven't done it as much, but I like to, is because it forces me to really think through what's in my own head. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure that I've actually had to explain social capital, social networking of any, on on any level, at, at such a basic level in quite a while. And it's probably something I need to be doing more in my classroom. <laughs> so when this is done, obviously it looks like you, you, all your all your stuff gets posted up on SoundCloud and stuff like that. I'd love to, you know, just you know, get a, a quick tap like, hey, you know, it's up there. Yeah, of course. Uh, and, and then I'm just going to literally use it as like, hey, when we when we get to the when we get to the conversation about social capital and collective efficacy, I did this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually I actually kind of liked it. So here, let's you know. Let's let's walk through the dynamics of what social networking even means before we ever get to the, the, the specific criminological concepts because that's where it starts. It's yeah. all connected to how we connect as people. So that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed and make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts.